a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart from the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, yet as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and he through the spirit of the holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this may be the last pre-recorded message that we have to do as a church this year, which has been unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. For me, I'm I'm very glad. You know, it's been very unusual preaching to to a camera phone on my own in a room with no one else there to to see their responses or or faces as I speak. And it's been nearly exactly six months since these restrictions began, first to protect the NHS and They've worked well, and we pray that they'll go on continuing to keep us safe. But do you remember right at the beginning, when all this began, that there was virtually no other news being presented other than that about COVID-19? When it first started, there was nothing else to report. No sport, no events, no politics. It was a nice change to not have all the latest Brexit shenanigans on repeat. But now the news cycles are again covering all the usual suspects, you know, the political manoeuvring, the Premier League, elections, riots, migrant crossings, extreme weather. And depending on, on who you listen to, those to blame for each incident are either vilified or, or praised according to your political bent. But I'm sure you might have noticed too that the way things are being reported are becoming more and more polarised. You know, the difference between left and right politically between progressive or or conservative. It's becoming wider and wider, and and there seems to be no room for disagreement or for healthy argument, or to even see the strengths that both sides can bring, or how a diversity of viewpoint is actually so important to prevent society from becoming stagnant or, or corrupt even. And because much of our media is run by very progressive types, Certain viewpoints seem to be given much more airtime than others, and other less acceptable opinions are ridiculed or even portrayed as bad or or on the wrong side of history. You don't have to look too far, for example. I mean, if you voted Leave in the Brexit referendum, maybe you know all about that. If you're a a Trump supporter in America, for instance, maybe if you you hold pro-life views, if you believe in the biblical definition of marriage... Many are ashamed to to share their support for such things, to let others know what they believe, even though they may be passionate about them. Many fear being ridiculed or even cancelled for not having an acceptable viewpoint in what's meant to be a a civilised society. Ought we be ashamed of the things we hold dear, of the causes that we're enthusiastic about, what about something that you believe in you know, wholeheartedly and you even want to build your whole life on it? Would we, would we be ashamed of that? What if it's the gospel, you know, the message 
of Jesus, the saviour of the world, the righteousness of God. Are you, are you ever tempted to be ashamed of following Jesus? Or speaking about his message of salvation? Well, Paul, in the opening chapter of his letter to the Romans, he says in verse 16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And it brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I am not ashamed. In a Roman culture, perhaps much like our own, where Christians didn't have a very big voice in the public square, where the might of Rome and the, the power, the influence, the global expansion that was the order of the day, well, Christians may have been tempted to be embarrassed about the message of Jesus. It's a, it's a seemingly foolish story of a crucified Messiah. But Paul says, no, I'm not ashamed. This is the power of God. And you think Rome was powerful, and it was. It's perhaps the most powerful empire that's ever existed. But true power, it comes from God. And the power to speak this universe into existence. And, and the power to bring back to life a crucified carpenter. There is power in the gospel, Paul says, and, it, and its power brings salvation to anyone who would believe it. It gives to the most corrupt criminal a righteousness from God. It gives to the most downtrodden slave eternal freedom and honour. And it gives to the middle of the road, average Joe, a purpose and a significance in the world it gives each one a new spirit-filled heart that longs for the things of glory. And it gives a hope and a peace and a joy that no amount of monotony and boredom could ever take away. You see, this is the message of Romans. A righteousness from God has been revealed for Jews and Gentiles. And I'm not ashamed of it, Paul says, and neither should we be. So we've finished our summer series in the Psalms, and we're going back now to Paul's magnificent letter to the Roman church. Nearly a year ago, in the lead up to last Christmas, when we looked at the first three chapters of this book, and we're planning now to continue right where we left off this, to this coming Christmas. And my job this morning is just to recap the first cha three chapters of this book. It's perhaps the, the richest book in the whole Bible. And great preachers have spent their lives year after year expounding it a verse at a time. And so it's a big task I have to recap three whole chapters. But what I'd like to do is just take one passage from each of the three chapters that I think helps to, to, to explain to us the essence of Paul's message to us. And so with chapter one, I've already started actually. Look again at verse 16 and 17. Paul says... I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. The righteousness of God, that, that's a key phrase that... Paul uses in this letter and it gets to the heart of what the gospel is I think righteousness that is to be right to to be good to be holy it's what we were made 
to be, and that's what's expected of us too. But it's something that none of us can achieve. But Paul opens the letter with with the most boldest of all declarations, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed. There is a way, he says, to be right with God. And I think we all long for this. Only many of us don't realise that in the world, those who, who aren't Christians, they too, they long for righteousness. They just wouldn't call it that. But there is this desire, isn't there, for things to be right. Now, there's much injustice in the world, and we say this is not right. Now, there's a way that we ought to, to treat one another. There's a standard that's expected. So there's a way of righteousness. Maybe people would argue, though, over who defines that righteousness. But I think most know when something isn't right. Suffering and evil are a universal problem, which is an interesting idea in itself, because you can't have evil without a good to contrast it to, a righteousness. And so we see a world that's breaking, the environment which is groaning. We long for harmony, not just with one another, but with nature, with the whole universe and within ourselves, and ultimately with God. Because we sense there's more to life than this. There must be some purpose or meaning to it all. Something or someone that defines us. And knows what we're designed for and reveals our true identity. We know something is awry. There's a disconnect. There's the separation from God, our maker. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be made right. And Paul says, yes, there is a righteousness from God. It's been revealed. This is the gospel. It's salvation. It's resurrection. It's life. It's belonging. It's power. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. I want this resurrection. How do I get it, Paul? And what he tells us in verse 17, it is a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, there's no other way. It is by faith. That is, it's by believing, it's by trusting, by receiving something that you haven't earned and you cannot earn. He contrasts faith with the law. Now, the law is keeping rules in order to be good, to be righteous. Only for that to work, you have to keep every single law of God all the time. To be righteous by the law is to not mess up even once. Even with a wrong thought or a look. And you could sum up the law in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall honour your father and mother and so on. And they could all be summed up themselves in one great command. To love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul. With all your mind and strength. And to love your neighbour as yourself. Love. That's the law. Now, if one was able to do that all the time, every moment of your existence, then one would be considered righteous. But but only Jesus has ever lived the sinless life. And therefore, the law can't save us. It doesn't make us righteous. In fact, it does the opposite, Paul will say. It condemns us. But there is good news. And this is what Paul is not ashamed of. It is the best news. There is a righteousness that is by faith. Now, one of the big reasons that Paul is writing this letter to the Romans is because there are 
tensions between two groups of people in the church. Paul, he probably wrote the letter about 57 AD. And eight years before that, in 49 AD, the Roman Emperor Claudius, he kicked out all the Jews from Rome because they were causing trouble. And so the Roman church grew up without much Jewish influence. Now this is only 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. It was very early. And when Jews eventually moved back to Rome, which they did once Claudius had died, the Jews who had put their faith in Christ, they rejoined the Roman church and they fellowshiped with them. But the church had become quite settled in the Jews' absence. And so there was this tension that grew between the two groups. One group became quite arrogant because they were seeing God's blessing in spite of the Jews' absence. And the other felt quite superior still because of their history, because of their calling as the people of Israel. And so the letter Paul writes here, he tries to cut through both of these attitudes. The gospel, he says, it brings salvation to everyone who believes. Yes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. And the passage I've chosen now from chapter 2, it helps to deal with some of this tension. It comes right at the end in chapter 2, verse 28. It says this, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. You see, God has chosen the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, to be a very special and set-apart people. But there is something unique. There is something privileged in being a Jew, and we need to acknowledge that. I actually learned this year that that I have a Jewish heritage myself. I never knew about that. My great-grandmother, apparently, was born to a, a Jewish man in Southend, in Essex. But Paul says that that a Jew is is not one with the right bloodline or with the luck of your birth. It's to do with your heart. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. It's not about whether you've been circumcised, which is a a Jewish law or ritual, but it's about the work of the Spirit. It's an act of God that gives us new hearts, a soft heart that, that loves him and submits to him and finds its joy and fulfillment in him. What Paul is doing right here is that he's teeing up the great Romans chapter 8, which is all about life in the spirit. But for now, what he's doing is he's just laying a little golf ball here in chapter 2. And later on, he's going to come and smash it down the fairway and reveal in all its glory what that spirit-filled life looks like. But he needs to lay the foundation first of what the gospel is and why it matters to the people of Rome and and for the tensions that that arise between believers and and for people like you and me. The righteousness of God, that's the gospel. It can't be earned or achieved by keeping the law or won simply because you had the right parents, but it is by faith. It is a spiritual act, which is ultimately an act of God, an act of grace. And that leads us to my last passage, this time from chapter 3. And verses 21 to 24. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith. 
in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I love these verses. It picks up all these big themes. That phrase again, the righteousness of God. That's what we're searching for. And the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament. He says they testify to this righteousness. That means this isn't some new novel religion. It has history back to the beginning of time. The Jews, they were chosen for a purpose. One of which was to be entrusted with the very words of God. And these ancient prophecies which show us that God had planned the revealing of this righteousness since before the creation of the world. And it all centered around Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the answer. This righteousness is given through faith in him. And he says it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. There's no difference, essentially. We all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. That's where we were, remember, last week in chapter 53 of Psalms. The fool is said there in his his heart, says there's no God. Everyone's turned away. There's no one who does good. Not even one, he says. That's you and me. That's each of us as we're born with a a sinful nature running through our veins. And so Paul actually spends a big chunk of these first three chapters painting a very bleak picture of humanity, of a broken world, one which is filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, depravity and greed. He says, we've been given over to our sinful desires and we've exchanged the glory of God for sex and and for money and power. But while you and I fall short of God's glory, while our politicians and media and celebrities and activists fail to make a lasting difference, there is a righteousness from God. You can be justified. That is, you can be declared righteous. And it's by grace, verse 24 says, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul, he's at pains to help us see why this gospel really is the power of God. Why he's not ashamed of it. Far from it. Why he travelled the world facing death and opposition to let us know about it. You see, the thing that we long for most in the world, that righteousness, that perfection and wholeness and and things being the way they should be, being right with God, it's offered freely as an act of grace. Grace is amazing. There's a story I'd like to close with in a moment that came out of South Africa. And I just discovered it this week. 27 years ago in South Africa, a service was being held at St. James's Church in Cape Town. It was a gospel-centred, a grace-filled church. There are blacks and whites meeting together. It's a place of real hope, real outreach to the community. They met with the sailors who travelled into the ports there. But on this day in 1993, the children had just gone out to their classes. The teenagers and the adults remained. They were just finishing the last song before the sermon would begin. When the doors of the church burst open and two gunmen walked in, they threw two grenades, which had wire nails glued to it, into the hall and then they ran outside again. After they exploded, the men came back in with their machine guns and R4 rifles and they unloaded 
everything they had into those who remained. All 62 rounds of ammunition were fired. Then they ran out and drove off into hiding. There was a man there called Mr. Ackerman. His son was with him and his wife too. She was sitting by the door wearing a blue coat. Somehow he, Mr. Ackerman, hadn't been hurt in in the carnage. And in the initial shock and silence that followed the massacre, he was desperate to see if his wife was okay. He looked for her blue coat. The grenade had landed three benches in front of him and had blown it apart. He saw his friend, Dimitri, lying on the ground with his legs blown off. There was blood everywhere. But it just made him even more focused to find his wife. He had to step over dead bodies of people he knew with open wounds, with blood oozing onto the carpet. Others were shot or dying. And he finally saw his wife, who was still sitting upright on the bench by the door. He looked into her eyes with the hope of seeing life, but she had not survived. There were 125 people in St. James's Church that day. 69 were wounded, 11 were killed, including three children and Mr. Ackerman's wife. The gunmen were eventually caught. They were soon imprisoned. But four years after that event, in 1997, the murderers, they appealed to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa for amnesty. They were members of a nationalist movement in Africa. And after a long hearing at the commission with the gunmen confessing all the things they had done, and others sharing how that they had been affected by the tragedy that day. Mr. Ackerman was one of the last to speak. And after giving his account of that day, he says this. May I ask the applicants to turn around and to face me? This is the first opportunity that we've had to look each other in the eye. And then he says to them, I want you to know that I forgive you unconditionally. I do that because I am a Christian and I can forgive you for the hurt that you have caused me. But I cannot forgive you the sin that you have done. Only God can forgive you for that. And I plead with you. When God saved me, he gave me something that I can't explain and that is love. A love for people, all people, to have what I have. I appeal to you to go back to your parents, to ask them for forgiveness too, And that you would consider the Christian gospel, Christ, as the mediator. The person that can forgive you from eternal sin. You're going to have to consider that and I appeal to you to do it. When he was asked how he could say such a thing, Mr Ackerman said, I hold no personal grudge. I do not hate them and I stand by that. I also held out reconciliation to them. And I believe with all my heart because I have experienced reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. That it is available to everybody, including to them. And I held that out to them and at the time, and I still do so now. I think it's a remarkable testimony. This is a picture of amazing grace. See, there's a righteousness from God that's available to anyone who would receive it by faith. Even the worst sinner 
can be justified freely by grace and the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Mr. Ackerman, he knew that. The four men of the commission, they murdered his wife and ten others. But they were granted amnesty. That is, they were forgiven. They were given freedom. They were released from prison as an act of grace, completely undeserved. The book of Romans reveals to us the greatest truth the world could ever know. The gospel message is the very power of God. How can we ever be ashamed of it? You know, it breaks down every barrier, every, every ounce of pride and arrogance, that thinking that, that God might be quite pleased to have me in his kingdom. The gospel message humbles every one of us. That salvation is by faith means that no one can boast, no matter your heritage or your upbringing, what counts is a heart that's been changed. Like Mr. Ackerman's, who's had a work of the Spirit in his life, making our, our broken, sin-filled, lifeless hearts beat again. And it's all an act of grace. It's, it's a free gift. Those four men, they knew what it was to receive mercy. They could do nothing to earn it. And even more, they didn't deserve it. I pray that they would truly find the righteousness that comes from God alone. But what about you? Have you received it? This righteousness? Why wouldn't you? And if you know the righteousness of God yourself already, are you delighted by it? Are you unashamed? Are you living a life for the glory and honour of your Saviour, no matter what it costs you? The Gospel is the power of God. Let's not fear speaking up about it, no matter how unpopular or unprogressive it may seem, or what it may cost us in loving our enemies and showing the same grace to them. Paul, he would go on to say in this great book of Romans, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he was convinced, Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was convinced by that. Are you convinced? And are you living unashamed at the power of the gospel?